Today's podcast was originally prepared for the 7th of October, 2022. It is still podcast number 813, but it's being released on the 6th of January, 2023. It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense, all in more or less plain English. Podcast number 813 for the 7th of October, 2022. This week, desktop computers are smaller than they used to be. Tower boxes are shorter. But if you really want to save space, consider a notebook computer, possibly with a dock. Notebook systems cost more, and desktop systems still have certain advantages, but the trend is toward smaller devices. In short circuits, LastPass reported a security incident in late August, and doomsayers made a lot of noise. As it turned out, the intrusion wasn't a big deal, and I'll explain why. Windows 10 and Windows 11 apps are not installed in the usual program files and program files x86 directories. Instead, they are in a hidden directory inside the Windows directory. If you want to examine that directory, it can be challenging. And 20 years ago, only on the website, in 2002, thinking that the cat or dog could eat your computer was a bit of hyperbole. But today we have watches that are essentially computers. Maybe your cat couldn't eat it, but the dog might. The latest desktop computers are less often big boxes that make a lot of noise and take up most of the desk. Increasingly, they are notebook computers with an external mouse, keyboard, and screen. Making the right choice depends on knowing how you want to use the computer. It's hard to pin down accurate numbers, but research firms that specialize in computer data generally agree that mobile computers are taking the lead. One problem is that some people have been able to replace all of their computing devices with a phone. So the most used operating system is Android. But could you replace a desktop, a notebook, or a tablet computer with a phone? I couldn't, even though keyboards, mice, and monitors can be connected to some phones. StatCounter says that mobile devices have 51% of the market, compared to 46% for desktop systems, 3% for tablets. But StatCounter gets its figures from websites. Devices that don't connect to websites monitored by the service don't count. And those figures are for North America. Worldwide, the figures are 60%, 39%, and 2%, respectively. In Europe, it's 52%, 46%, and 3%. Apple sells a lot of notebook computers, but three Windows PC manufacturers account for 60% of laptop computers sold, Lenovo, Dell, and HP. According to Web Tribunal, Lenovo has a 24% share of the PC market, by comparison, Apple has a bit less than 7% of the market. Lenovo is a Chinese company. Although Dell, HP, and Apple are not Chinese companies, most of their computers are manufactured in China.
I used to joke about the perfect lens for a 35mm film camera. I wanted a zoom lens that would cover the range from 10mm to 1000mm with constant f-stops across the entire range, no pincushion distortion, no barrel distortion at any length. The lens would be no more than 6 inches long, weigh less than 2 pounds, cost about $250. Well, needless to say, no manufacturer ever created such a lens because, in part, it would violate several laws of physics. Likewise, there is no single perfect all-purpose computer. It just can't be made. At least, not today. Notebook computers are portable and come with built-in Wi-Fi capabilities. When you buy a new notebook computer, it's essentially ready for use as soon as you take it out of the box. Most notebook screens have exceedingly high resolution, and the computers use much less power than a desktop computer. That last point isn't very important if you have just one or two computers in the house, but an enterprise that replaces hundreds or thousands of power-hungry desktop systems with notebook computers can expect to see their usage of electricity decline. But keyboards on notebook computers are often hard to use, and you won't find an articulated keyboard on any notebook computer. Because the screen has high resolution, text will be small and difficult to read. Notebook computers cost considerably more than technically equivalent desktop systems, and they're more difficult to upgrade if you need to add memory or disk space. Because notebook computers are portable, they are more likely to be lost, damaged, or stolen. Desktop systems can use CPUs that wouldn't work in a notebook computer because the CPU would be too large or too hot for a notebook's small case. Desktop systems have components that can easily be removed, so upgrades are relatively easy, and there's often space in the case for additional disk drives. Because they aren't portable, desktop systems are less likely to be stolen. So which is right for you? Well, if performance is the absolute top priority, a desktop computer is definitely the right choice. I've been using a notebook computer on the desktop for nearly a decade now, but if most of my day was consumed by video production, I would probably still want a desktop system. Except for that, my preference is for a notebook computer with external monitors, a mouse, and a keyboard. Add a disk enclosure for four external disk drives, and the result is all of the storage and user interfaces I'd have had with a desktop system, although at a somewhat higher price and a bit lower overall performance. I can't make a valid case for needing portability, because the four external drives need to be present for the computer to work normally. They are, of course, the devices that hold all the data. It's true that I could create two separate login procedures, one which would eliminate the need for those external drives, but I can use a Windows Surface 6 Pro tablet, an iPad, or even a smartphone for those rare times when I must have a mobile computing device. Another big advantage for me is that the notebook computer takes up little space, and I'm able to place both a MacBook Pro and the Windows notebook on the same desktop and share the keyboard, mouse, and screens between them. So the next time you're looking for a new computer, don't rule out either a desktop or a notebook system. Analyze what's important to you, then make the decision based on your requirements. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, 
might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, around the end of August, LastPass users received a message with the subject, Notice of Recent Security Incident. That's scary, of course, and the subject line doubtless caused a lot of people to open that message expecting the worst. Well, it wasn't that bad. The message said that their internal security processes recently detected some unusual activity within portions of the LastPass development environment. The response was exactly right. We immediately initiated an investigation, deployed containment and mitigation measures, and engaged a leading cybersecurity and forensics firm. The message didn't identify the forensics firm, but that's probably a contractual thing. The company says they contained the threat, implemented additional enhanced security measures, and see no further evidence of any unauthorized activity. They also explained how an unauthorized party gained access to portions of the LastPass development environment. A single developer account had been compromised, and the intruder took portions of source code and some proprietary LastPass technical information. As serious as that may sound, and it certainly does sound serious, it's really not very troubling. Anybody can obtain the source code for KeePass, KeePassX, Bitwarden, and several other password managers. Bitwarden is a commercial enterprise, like LastPass, but Bitwarden is an open-source project, while LastPass is proprietary. So the fact that a bad player managed to get into the development system isn't a particularly large concern. The fact that LastPass noticed the activity promptly and shut it down is good. Even better is the fact that they went public with the announcement. To understand why gaining access to the source code isn't a big deal, it's also important to know that large software companies typically have three systems that are not directly connected to each other, development, staging, and production. Those of us who use LastPass communicate with the production system, and only with the production system. That's where our encrypted passwords reside. Nobody at the company can see your data because it's encrypted and because the master password isn't stored with your data. In fact, it isn't stored anywhere at LastPass. That's why users are cautioned that LastPass cannot provide your password if you lose it. The developers work on the development system, which has only the resources needed to write and debug code. No user data will ever be on the development system. Developers test their code on the dev server to confirm that it will run properly with the rest of the application. When the code has passed all of the tests on the dev server, it's moved to a staging server for more robust testing. The staging server also has no user data, but it does have data that's designed to look like user data. 
After testing on the staging server, the code is either moved to the production server, or if flaws were identified, the developers receive feedback and continue working on the development server. So simply being able to see the source code doesn't introduce any vulnerabilities. Even if an intruder managed to modify the source code somehow, those changes would be spotted while still on the development server, most likely, or at the very least during testing on the staging server. LastPass says there is no evidence that the incident involved any access to customer data or encrypted password vaults, and that all products and services are operating normally. LastPass also set up a blog post dedicated to providing more information on the incident as it becomes available. You'll find a link to that blog post on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Windows 10 and Windows 11 computers have programs that came with the computer or can be downloaded from the Microsoft Store. But where are these applications installed? You won't find them in the Program Files directory or the Program Files x86 directory. So where are they? Apps files are in a hidden directory called Windows Apps. All Windows apps that you install or that came with the factory version of Windows 10 or Windows 11 are right there. Maybe you'd like to see what's in that folder. And before we go any further, here's a caution. Look, but don't touch. Microsoft protects the Windows Apps directory for a good reason. What I describe in the next few minutes is safe. But don't add, modify, or remove files in the Windows Apps directory. So with that warning out of the way, let's move on. I have the Barnes & Noble Nook Reader. If I try to find it using Agent Ransack, I'll see a list of data files and log files in the app data folder and elsewhere, but not the application files that I know are in the Windows Apps directory. I know that because I just mentioned it a moment ago. Searching for how to open the Windows Apps directory will lead to many convoluted descriptions. Tech Republic explains that you can use the shell command to open the Windows Apps directory, but then has to explain how to use the shell. There are lots of good reasons to use the shell, but this seems like it might not be one, at least not at the beginning. Geekflare omits the discussion of shell to open Windows apps, but then offers three other options, opening an app and then using the task manager to locate the directory it's in, that's six steps, using the Windows File Explorer and then turning on the option to see hidden directories, that takes 23 steps, and using PowerShell. 11 steps. Why all the complex options? If you want to see Windows apps, all you need to know is that it's located inside the Windows directory. So step one, open the command processor as administrator. Step two, type cd space quotation marks c colon backslash program files backslash windows apps quotation mark and press enter. Step three, type dir and press enter and you'll see a list of files and folders. To see a list of directories and subdirectories, you'd need to type dir forward slash s, or to see all of the files associated with the Nook Reader, I could type dir space asterisk nook asterisk forward slash s. 
Now, admittedly, if you want a view that's easier to read, you will need one of the more involved processes, and Tech Republic's process is the best for just viewing which applications are there, but that's all you can do. Clicking the icon for the Nook Reader will start the app. Right-clicking would allow you to pin or unpin the app on the Start menu or taskbar, or to create a shortcut. That's all. But because it's important not to meddle with files in the Windows Apps directory, nothing more complicated is needed if you just want to look. There are no special tricks to perform if you want to read 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just visit the website, and this week you'll find an article from 2002 in which I wondered if computers were becoming so small that the cat might eat one. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session. <music> <laughs>